Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Hiawatha. Uh, if you're first, first time here today, if you're a visitor, uh, welcome especially to you, as Spencer said earlier. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and as um, Peter preached basically earlier and took, uh, yeah, I know, I should just go home. No, it's good. It's all good. Um, we are in Genesis right now as a church, uh, as a sermon, in a sermon series on Genesis, first book of the Bible, and have uh, been looking at creation for a few weeks now. We're in chapter 2. And if you want to turn to your Bibles or devices, that'd be great. It's Genesis 2, 4 to 17. It's easy to find in the Pew Bibles. It's, it's literally page 2 in the Pew Bible. So uh, first, first book of the, the Old Testament, the Bible. And uh, it's, it's really, uh, chapter 2 is kind of constituting as creation narrative take 2. So if you know anything about the first couple of chapters of the Bible, you know that there's two creation narratives that complement each other. The first one is, uh, and many have said this before, I heard it recently, uh, Spencer shared this with me through, uh, through uh, from someone else, but chapter one kind of sounds more like a poem or a song, uh, and chapter two is more like a narrative that focuses on the creation of humankind. And, and so uh, they, they go together. Uh, it's The first one's a little bit more big picture, uh, cosmic, all-encompassing, and the second one hones in a bit, and it gets more specific, and it reads more like a, a narrative. So think about like maybe a psalm for uh, the, the first chapter, and then uh, with the second one, maybe a letter of Paul in the New Testament, kind of uh, in the, the spirit of that. It's same genre, it's still Old Testament narrative, but still has that flair to it. So, uh, so today we're going to continue. Last week actually was day seven of creation, when the day when God rested. We talked about that. That begins chapter two, so we're in uh, verse four today again, which is focusing on the creation of humankind. And I said this the first week too, but if you weren't there the first week we started Genesis, I'll say it again here. You kind of get a picture of it here as well, but I think in, in the first, uh, when I mentioned this first a few weeks ago, I, I mentioned a reference to Abraham, but you notice this in, in Genesis, how God starts really big and global and even cosmic, talking about the stars and the universe, and then right away he hones in, and even in chapter one you see this, how he specially creates human beings, and he calls them, he, he, he creates them in his image and, and blesses them specially, the animals with them too, but specially blesses humankind and so you see it there, but here, just, just that another chapter is given over to the creation of humankind, it tells you, uh, even with, just without saying it explicitly, that there's something special about humankind. He's going he's gonna to do something through them uh, that's going to bring him special glory and special, special kind of fame. And so that's uh, partly what's going on here as well in, uh, in, in chapter 2. So some particular details then as well about the, the Garden of Eden. So we'll look at a couple of things today. The creation of, of Adam. He's not named Adam here. Uh, Adam is a Hebrew word for man, and so it's kind of interchangeable. We'll uh, see him by name next week, I believe, in next week's passage. Uh, when Eve, his wife, is introduced, the first marriage happens, the first garden wedding, I guess you could say. First ever garden wedding takes place. God, uh, God is officiating that, and a uh, wonderful passage on, on Eve and how she's created. But today, Adam is made, and again, chapter 1 says he's made. God, on the sixth day, creates, but not, not, the how's not mentioned. And so today's more of the how. Adam is made from the ground and, uh, and so forth. So we'll look at that. But the garden as well, the makeup of the Garden of Eden and why that's described, it gets very wonderfully theologically specific. And, um, and then, of course, the garden just being where God himself dwelled and walked. That, too, is telling us something that God is, he, again, he, again, he's honing in on something. He, he's everywhere. He's made everything. You can't contain him, and yet he chooses to dwell specially in certain places throughout uh, the Old Testament as it helps tell the story of Christ um, in different ways, and so we'll um, talk about that as well. But So that's a few things uh, for where we're headed today. Uh, today's passage is Genesis 2, 4 to 17, looking at, at this garden 
which God calls Eden. Verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So just so you guys are aware of where we're headed here, we will look more at what the knowledge or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is in a couple of weeks uh, when Adam and Eve uh, do, like, like uh, Peter said, spoiler alert, but they do, eat this, they do eat this fruit and just how sin comes into the world. That'll be more of a, a topic uh, for a couple of weeks from now, but um, for today we're just going to kind of let it, let it sit there. Uh, but these two trees, all kinds of trees are present, but these two named trees are important. We'll look at more at the tree of life today and how significant uh, that is. But first, let's look at uh, the creation of man. Again, kind of the creation of man, take two here, because we've looked at this already, but uh, today other things are mentioned about him and about uh, how, God, how God formed him in verse 7. So we'll look at verse 7 in particular here. I'll read this again. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And so here, uh, we really understand, we come to understand, and there's more to say about who we are as human beings, but we're, we're coming to understand quite early in the story uh, two major components of what mankind it, uh, truly is made of here. And there are really, I think, fewer better questions than that that we can ask as humans, who are we? And what are we doing here? Uh, what are we exactly? What are we really made of? And uh, there are a couple, uh, couple answers to that here in in verse 7, the, the first answer to that is that we are people of dust. We are people of dust. And so a Adam is actually called the man of dust. And, and even though later Eve is made from one of his ribs, not like from dust like Adam is here, she's still made of the man who was dust before she was around. <laughs> so kind of trace that back. Uh, it can be said that we are all then people of, people of dust. So we'll widen that out a little bit. But the question I think here is why did God choose to create this way? Right? I don't know if you ever wondered that or not. It's kind of odd and strange. There's not a lot of, I mean, there's angels around, but there's no people yet, not a lot of people to see this. And I guess he knows he's going to write this someday, and we're going to appreciate this and learn from this in different capacities. But he's doing something that's special here. He's creating in a way that he didn't before. He didn't have to. He's actually been creating by speaking words alone up to this point. The dust, in fact, the dirt he's using to make the man here, he created by speaking. Uh, let there be earth. Let there be land. And so he could have easily done the same here with people. 
but he chose a different way uh, to create from, from the earth, from the, the dusty soil. And so the question is, why, does he, why is he doing this? And one reason I'll focus on today is, um, to al- I think, to always remind us of our origins uh, as people and to humble us in this knowledge. Uh, we are dust. This spring, uh, you know, Minneapolis is great for this if you're from this city. I know the suburbs maybe. I, know, I grew up in Apple Valley, so I know that the soil down there is more clay. It's chunky. It's hard to, hard to work with. But on this, in, the, in the city, it's very sandy, at least in my backyard. Uh, and so I encourage you to go outside this spring and just pick up some fine, dust-like, sandy soil from the ground and kind of uh, let the clumps fall apart in your hand and just say to yourself, this is me. This is what I am. Basically, this is what I am. And you are. All of us are. We are dust. It's good for the soul. Uh, as John Calvin says in his commentary, can dust impress God? Can dust turn his head? Has dust ever impressed you? You ever woken up and said, wow, it's wonderful dust on the ground there. Just kind of, it's impressive. Let me draw it, you know, or something. Or let's do a still life here or something. Like, like not really, right? Dust is what it is. It's not that it's inherently evil. It's just dust. It's very simple and it's not very, not very impressive. Galatians 6.3 says in the New Testament, just about uh, speaking to Christians who kind of wander from the path of forgetting our origins and who we are before God generally and a Savior specifically. It says, for if anyone thinks that he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. In other words, to use Genesis 1 language, we are made from the dust of the garden, not the gold. There was gold, there was onyx, there was uh, delium present there. He could have used some of these minerals to make human beings, right? The gold is called good, but he didn't. We are not made of gold. We are not made of these precious minerals. We are made of dust. And so in the spirit of Galatians 6, uh, this humbles us. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he lies to himself. It's just a lie. Uh, to say that we're made of gold or to say kind of in the spirit of that, that we are something before God when we are really, in fact, uh, just dust. And so the byproduct of, the th- of thoughts like this, and, and to be clear, this is not saying, this is not kind of an extremely downtrodden, uh, you know, in every sense of the word, we are evil and we are, uh, you know, in, in every sense of the word, dust to God, but it is to keep us in our place. Uh, the, the, a byproduct, healthy byproducts of thoughts like this are, you know, things like uh, crying out for help to God, uh, simply to find our identity in being a creature of God alone. We have propensity as sinners to think we're more than creatures, we're creators. We're not. If we create, uh, it's in the spirit of God helping us to do that. It's, we're, we're in his image, but uh, we are at the core uh, not the creator. We are creatures he has made. And so another byproduct is we stop trying to impress him. Because again, dust can't impress God. And so if we don't think that we're dust, it, it's as simple as this. We won't ask him to save us from our sins. We just won't. We might believe in him. We might be impressed by him. We might quote some of his teachings. We might read about him. But at the end of the day, we won't cry out for help because we think we're gold from the garden, not, not the dust. And so then if we're, if we're gold, we'll, we'll live our lives showing off to others and, and off to God, uh, but, but not crying out for help. It's really, like I said, uh, as, as simple as that. So good for the soul. A uh, good byproduct of, of thoughts of dust is how it, it, it gives us a posture towards God that is create, cre- creation, creator, I need help, and you're the help uh, to, give me, uh, to give me that help. 
All right, so that's the first thing, uh, is that we're dust, but we keep reading in the same verse. It says we're more than dust, we are spirit. So we, we were made from the ground. We, we were, and as Adam was, the man of dust, it's called, but we were also breathed into to, to have life within us. We're living creatures with uh, the breath of, of God within us. But the only reason you see here, as verse 7 reads, and I love this, the only reason is uh, that we have life is because God chose to breathe life into us. You know, and, and we might think, no, I, I, I came from my mother's womb. I'm not, you know, dust in that sense of the word, or there's a different way we have life. But the answer is, well, yes, we came from our mother's womb, but only because God intended it. He, he breathed on your parents to allow them to conceive. That's the broader truth here. And so our beauty is from him. Uh, it's, he, he is our life uh, alone, and, and our life alone uh, inside of us is, is from him and his breath. Otherwise, we're, we're just dust. So this is true physically. You know, I think in a physical level as well, I don't know a lot about this, I'm not a doctor but, um, uh, in a, or a specialist on anatomy or anything, but you know, I, I do know that hearts, heart beating are involuntary, right? We don't tell and think about you know, telling our heart to beat. It just beats. None of us chose to be here. We were just born. None of us chose to have the circumstances around our life that we had when we were born, and no, none of us are choosing to make our heart beat, right? It just beats because God makes it beat. So there's grace in that. Uh, God wants it to. He's breathed into you the breath of life. And physically speaking, like it's happening for the first time back here in Genesis 2, but also every time a human being is born ever since. This is true physically. But I think God also created in this way so that late, later he might do it again uh, through his son. Remember how we're seeing these patterns of old to new and we're, we're allowing Genesis to speak into the New Testament era like it's, it's doing tirelessly. It's the same here as well. After Jesus died on the cross for our sins and he was raised again, it says in John 20, he appears to his disciples. This is the first time he appears. And it says, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. One of the first things Jesus does is get around his disciples and go, oh, what? This is odd, you know, like what's he doing? And I mean, that, that's, that's weird if you read that unto itself. If the only thing you know about the Bible is that verse, you're kind of like, okay, that's odd, and, and rightly so. That's going to be odd, right? But if you know, it's not weird if you know that Genesis and Jesus are connected. If Genesis and Jesus are linked, it's not strange, because God did this earlier in the story. And we know that he's up to recreation again in the New Testament. He's recreating. So he's physically doing this to demonstrate there's a new way here. There's a new creation. There's a new era. There's a new world God is again speaking into dust and, and making it live. And it was necessary because in our sin, we turned back to dust. Physically, we know what happens when our hearts stop beating, right? We know what happens to our bodies. They eventually, literally, turn to dust in the ground. So physically, this is the case when, when death began to reign after we sinned and Adam and Eve sinned and all of us with them. But spiritually as well, when we rebelled and went our own way and became our own gods and sinned and hurt people and offended God and hurt ourselves, spiritually speaking as well, we turned back to dust. And so we needed a new creation. If God is going to reverse that at all, he had to go back to the source and fix the problem and kind of go back behind what's going to be Genesis 3 here when Adam and Eve listen to the serpent and sin and go their own way and say, I don't need God. He has to go behind that and kind of restart. It's exactly what he's doing. He's re As we've been seeing over and over again in this series, through Jesus, he's recreating. Through the breath of Jesus saying, receive the Holy Spirit. He's breathing spirit, again, spirit, Holy Spirit life now. So it's actually a better kind of spirit, Holy Spirit life 
into all those who believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. That's the good news. God's doing this again. And they're dead things. God's again breathing life into things that are dust and, and dead, and they're coming to life. He's making beauty from ashes. He's, he's doing this for us right now in this room. Whatever you guys bring in the room, this is the good news for you and for me. Actually, here's something really encouraging. Uh, there's no record of God in the Bible starting with something beautiful and making it more beautiful. Every single time God works, it's always from dust and dirt and nothing and making it beautiful and gold-like and glorious and living and, and, and just awesome before him. Isn't that good news? So if you're dust, if you're a sinner, that's actually really good news for you because that's the only way God works. If you think you're gold, if you think you're beautiful, he didn't come for you. He doesn't work. There's no pattern of him working that way. There's no pre-existing matter, remember, in the beginning of something beautiful that God says, wow, I can work with this. It's nothing, or it's, uh, and, and God works with that, or it's we think we're something, we think we're gold, we think we're not dust, and he doesn't work with that, which isn't true anyway, but that can be our perception about ourselves. So that's incredibly good news for us. He only works from dust to beauty. So if that's the case, if that's what you feel like before God, whether it's the first time you're feeling this or the or you're a Christian, you know this, but you're feeling like that today, God is able and he's willing to cleanse you. He's able and willing to breathe life back into your souls, back into your bodies, so that you might live again. And what's actually wonderful, too, about the John 20 context, if, if you know what surrounds that Jesus breathed on them, verse, is that you know that Jesus finds them after his resurrection. After Jesus was raised up, he's the one that goes and miraculously appears to them. He finds them in order to breathe on them. So, so you know, Jesus is not, I was thinking of uh, that first new, new, of the new Batman trilogies or in the beginning where there's this pilgrimage that the guy takes to find this, you know, what's the guy? It's just that, you know, what's the first movie called? The first Batman. Is it just, is it Dark Knight or is that the second one? What's the first one called? Batman what? Batman Begins? Okay, so the beginning of that one, if you've seen that or like, or Kung Fu Panda, it's a different kind of, <laughs> other side of the, the, the spectrum, um, but uh, I actually think they're kind of good movies, but anyway, uh, where there's this uh, pilgrimage that people take, you know, Jesus is not meditating in some temple somewhere saying, come find me, and then we'll start training or something. You know, Jesus is not like that. That's, that, that's, that's not Christianity. Jesus, Christianity says, Jesus rises from the dead and he comes to chase you down when you're hiding and fearful for your life in a locked room like the disciples were. He comes and finds you in order to breathe on you. This is the good news here, is God is willing to do this. He's not just able, if we go and find him somewhere and, and, and journey and pilgrimage towards him, then maybe he'll do it. He's not just able He's willing. Remember those stories in the Gospels where he, he says that to, to people who are sick or, or leprous or paralyzed? He says, I, I am willing to heal you. I am willing, not just able. That's good news. This is true for you guys. This is not just for the leper. Uh, it, this is true. It's not about a pilgrimage. Christianity is not about a pilgrimage. It's, it's not really about a journey, even though we can, we can look at our life and say, I'm on a journey. It's about God journeying to you and me through his son. And, and being willing and able and wanting to recreate. I mean, think about that the next time you sin. And in, in the throes of sin, on the heels of it, right after you sin grievously, and you just know you shouldn't, but you can't help it. 
think, what is God thinking of me right now? That's what you should think of. Not the pilgrimage, not, all right, I'll check off 10 days or a month of not looking at porn, then maybe he'll want me. It's like, no, think about God wanting to be with you, wanting to die for you, wanting to breathe on you, able and willing. Right now in this very room, that's true. Whatever you guys are bringing, in, bringing into the room or going on in your life, he loves you. He's died for your sins, and he's wanting to recreate you. All he asks is belief, and that you believe he's able and willing and sufficient. All right, so that's the first piece there, the creation of man, take two, dust and spirit. Both, think about it like two sides of the same coin. Both make us yearn for God. Both make us, if we see the dust side, God, help me. Help me. Save me. And this is even before sin, we're dust. How much more are we dust when sin comes into the world, right? So there's, there's that. Uh, dust makes us have that kind of posture towards God, but also spirit because we only have the spirit because God just chooses in this moment to breathe life into dead things. And praise God, it's a pattern, not a flash in the pan. God never changes. He, he cyclically acts in his story. And he, he does it again, over and over again, in certain ways you could say in the Old Testament, but uh, typical foreshadowing ways, but here in, in the fullest of ways through his son. All right, let's shift gears now and look at the other half of this passage, which talks about the garden. So after he creates man, God plants a garden. Uh, God is, in fact, the first gardener, which obviously means God loves spring and hates winter. Kidding. Um, obviously kidding, kind of. Uh, but anyway, uh, wh- one thing that we have to understand theologically about, uh, I want to just go here for just a minute. Otherwise, what I'm saying here won't make sense. Um, we have to understand theologically about land and places of blessing in the Old Testament is that they're always, uh, and the New Testament helps us here again, there are always pictures of something more cosmic and spiritual in the New Testament. Uh, one example of this is the promised land that God later in the story is going to give his people Israel. Uh, we call it the promised land because it's land that God promised, hence the name. But it's just this land, a chunk of land off the eastern Mediterranean that was uh, fertile. It was a place of uh, widespread uh, f- uh, food and provision and, and protection. It was actually um, militarily, it was a st- strategic place as well. Uh, so God really gave this, this, uh, this wonderful place uh, to his people we call the promised land. But later in the New Testament, we see it becomes emblematic of the new earth. Or more specifically, salvation, which is called inheritance in the New Testament. So you ever read the word inheritance in the New Testament referring to your salvation? You should think that's the same word used uh, to denote land. Uh, it was an inheritance of land given to Israel in the Old Testament. So there's, there's movement then from Israel entering the promised land of God's presence in the Old Testament to the church entering the land of the gospel, as it were, or the land of salvation, the land of God's ultimate presence in his son, which is, uh, Peter was uh, hinting at that too before that last song. Or movement from having a share or a portion in the promised land to having a share the same word actually is used in John 13. Jesus says, uh, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no share in me, no portion. Uh, it's the same word, Greek word, used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to portions of land given to Israel, an inheritance. So Jesus is saying, I am the new land. I am the new place of blessing. I am the, the new uh, place of provision. I am the new place where you're nourished. I am the new place where you're protected. I'm the new place where God dwells. 
in me, but if you believe in me, uh, in you as well by, by the Spirit. So that's an example of, of a different chunk of land in the Old Testament. But we can apply that to the Garden of Eden as well, just beforehand on a smaller scale. So the first garden then that was a special place of God's presence serves to be a picture of later realities, especially again as we get to Jesus. It tells us about him. If Jesus is saying himself, I am the land, then we have to allow Genesis 1 or 2, in, in this case, to speak into what that means and, and look for these, these types of language, this creation language he's going to use when he's talking about himself and, and the gospel he's bringing into the world and who we are in light of, uh, in light of that salvation. And, and he does do that or the gospel writers do when, when they're narrating the story of his passion. So what I mean is this. The first thing we see is, and I'll look at a few components of the, uh, the garden. The first is uh, rivers. Uh, the first garden had four rivers in it, which culturally uh, were metaphors for sources of life. And so you see this kind of play out elsewhere in the Old Testament where rivers are used uh, to denote um, sort of life. Uh, so think living water, meaning moving water, meaning clean water, meaning life. Uh, you know, contrasting with stagnant water, for example. So rivers were, um, were metaphorical for, uh, for sources of life. But it says, as we fast forward to the New Testament, John 7, it says in John 7, 38 and 39, Jesus' words, at least in the first verse here, he says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, and it's interesting, we don't know what he's quoting here, uh, so we kind of guess, but as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Is that whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, he said this about the Spirit, John says, uh, or sorry, yeah, John. Uh, he said this about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. So, in John 7, this is not just to say that you will have life in you when you believe in me, that your dead heart will become alive again, it will become a source of life, but it's to say specifically because it's borrowing Eden-like language in the rivers, you will get back to an Eden-like existence with God. The garden of, of God's presence will be actually here. It will be here like before there was any sin in the world whatsoever. So it makes it such good news. Not just you will be alive, but it will be like here in the darkest corners of your heart, again, like before there was sin. When these four rivers split off from the main river that flowed from the center of, of the garden. No more stagnant waters spiritually. And because, again, Eden comes here, through Jesus and what he does for us on the cross and, and through our, as he says here, belief, simple belief that Jesus is who he says he is and that he did die for our sins and rise again. Belief in him and trust in him for forgiveness. You don't have to go searching for it. It's one of those kind of, again, this is similar to what I was talking about earlier in, in uh, John 20. The implication here is Jesus is bringing that very, very close to us. So we don't have to go searching for it. Eden comes to us. It's not out there for us to search for. Uh, Jesus doesn't come and give us a map. Uh, he, he, I guess, is the map, you could say, or he is the garden, better yet. And he, he says, I'm going to live in your heart when you believe. So, again, this is amazing. If this is the picture of God you get, it's very different. It's not a journey or a pilgrimage. Uh, it is uh, the good news that God brings Eden and, and that type of existence with God. He makes it possible. That's true and good. But more than that, he makes it a reality in our very hearts. Not just even out there five feet away from us. <laughs> Though that's good, I guess, right? But better. It's like 
right inside of our heart, from our heart will flow Eden-like sources of life. And uh, he will live inside of us by the Spirit and, and make us alive again. And there won't be any sin to divide. Amazing news. All right. That's the first thing, rivers. Second thing is uh, the tree of life. And there's a lot of trees, uh, as we read here. The first garden had many kinds of trees, but none greater than the tree of life, which it says later in chapter 3 was a tree that gave eternal life. So the fruit of the tree, the, the tree itself, was what allowed Adam and Eve to not age. It gave uh, eternal eternal life. And later, after sin comes into the world and they're cast out, uh, the way back to the tree of life is guarded. We'll talk about this in a few weeks from now, but um, so that they can't eat that fruit, uh, fruit and live forever as sinful people. So actually kind of a lot of grace in that, but anyway, we'll talk more about that later. But what's interesting is um, at the end of the book, end of the Bible, so not just end of Genesis, end of the Bible, the tree of life is mentioned again. So the Bible has literally bookended by mentioning the tree of life. There's a tree of life at the beginning, and there's a tree of life at, at the end. Uh, and in Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible, uh, John, one of Jesus' disciples, became an apostle who gets this vision to write the book of Revelation. Part of that vision uh, is about the future, the last few chapters at least. And he sees this new city of God that will come with Jesus from heaven, kind of a heaven-to-earth image where Christ will come back and, and, and he will reign here with his people and it will be a like a garden city kind of a lot of eden-like imagery uh that will constitute eternal life here on earth again when when christ returns in this city it says and i'll just summarize this there are rivers and a lot of the same named rivers are mentioned in revelation 22 as as they are here in genesis 2 uh delium and onyx those minerals are mentioned again as well as being and gold are, are mentioned as present in the new city in the end all this is meant to point us back, to say Eden is possible again. It's possible. We can get back. Best news ever. And so we have rivers, we have these minerals, but also the tree of life is mentioned. And I'll, and I'll quote uh, verse 2 here, which says, The tree of life, and so John sees the tree of life with, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of that tree were for the healing of the nations. And so we, we end this book with uh, mention of God bringing this tree back. And, but what adds to this, the beauty of this, the complexity of this, is a, a linguistic thing here, uh, where the Greek word for tree, which is ksilin, uh, which translates tree or wood uh, elsewhere in uh, the, uh, well, just in uh, common Greek of the day, but in the, in the New Testament, uh, which is, is the same word actually used for cross uh, elsewhere, Jesus' cross in the New Testament. When it talks about Jesus dying on the cross, it's the same word. So it's, it's this a cool linguistic connection between tree of life and cross of life, or uh, just the cross. Jesus died on the ultimate ksilin, uh, the ultimate tree, the ultimate cross. He was cursed for us there. Actually, one of the passages that references um, this same word, translated tree, is, is Galatians 3.13, which says, Christ redeemed us, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy something, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a cross. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a casillon. It's the same word here. So linguistic idea that Christ is, uh, and, and actually in uh, John 20, 41, here, uh, it says, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. Do you know that Jesus died in a garden? He was buried, we'll talk about this in a minute, he was buried in a garden. In this garden, there was a new tree of life set up. And it was a better one. Uh, and, and from its leaves, 
From its trunk, from its branches, came life for the nations, healing for the nations. It's the ultimate cross, the ultimate place of eternal life. Eternal life flows from it if we partake of its fruit. Ezekiel 36, uh, in the Old Testament, kind of going back here again, but it's, it's talking about Christ and re- the redemption he's going to bring into the world. Looking ahead, it says, Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will call, cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt. And the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. And so what this is telling us is a new Eden is coming. The old has been cursed, but a new one's coming. Christ will be the center of it. The tree of his cross will be in the very, uh, the very center. But this also says, and it makes clear, we, we, if, you, if you know the gospel, you know this, but what this makes clear is the new Eden has to do with forgiveness of sins. That, that's what makes it possible. We have to have that problem fixed, or God can't just make a second Eden. He has to fix the problem of sin and rebellion against him. And so it begins here, on the day I cleanse you from all your iniquities, they will look at that act of redemption and say, that's like Eden. Places are being tilled again. There's beautiful trees. There's fruit to eat. People inhabit it. People are close to God. There's rivers again. There's sources of life. There's fruit. There's leaves. There's perfection. That's what they're seeing here prophetically in a vision, actually almost kind of apocalyptically here in Ezekiel. A new Eden is coming, but it has to do with forgiveness of sins. And that's why it's appropriate to see the cross as the tree of life at the center of that garden forever. Not that Christ keeps suffering, it's finished, but we will always commemorate the death of our Savior. It will always be the place for the nations who, who come, the church comes before the, the, this tree and are healed and, and made whole and perfected. So the cross has to be present in this new garden. And, and now we get to partake once again. And look again here. I mean, coming back to this idea over and over again, but once you see it, it's kind of a, it's not even a main theme for today. It's a secondary theme. But how much this is from God doing it. At the end of this, he, he's actually, he's really clear. He just wants to pound this home because we, you know, we're forgetful people, I guess, or whatever. But he says, last sentence, the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. So part of what salvation is is to know that God is good. That's why he's doing it. For our benefit, but so that we might know that he is God and he does it and we don't. I have rebuilt the ruined places. Look who's the actor here, the, the, the mover. I have rebuilt the ruined places, starting right here in our sinful, sickened hearts. This is the ruined place, right? Because that's, how, that's what he's forgiving. That's what he's cleansing. What's the ruined places? Is it like an actual broken city? Not really. It's right here. This is the ruined place. This is the garden that can't be tilled. This is the hardened clay. This is the soil you can't propagate right here. Because we've gone our own way and we've sinned against him. But he's saying, now I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. This was, our hearts were desolate. Then at the end, I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. He wants it to be very, very clear that God saves and we don't. 
It's not by our works. It's not by finding him. It's about him finding us, and it's about his work for us on the cross. At the center of the eternal garden city that will constitute the new earth forever, we will see that cross, that tree of life, whatever that looks like, we will commemorate the death of God forever so that it will never be a mistake for the nations forever that God is amazingly loving. He is good. He has died for us. He has shed his blood, the righteous for the unrighteous. He has substituted himself. He has gone to hell and back, literally, for us on that cross, in love for us. And from it, again, flows not just the river of life, uh, but from its leaves, as Revelation 22 says, its leaves were for the healing, spiritual and physical healing of all the nations. All right, and, and third and final here is, um, don't forget the obvious. Uh, when we talk about the garden, there's a man in it. In the very beginning, uh, God creates this man, and it says God placed him in the garden. It's this really kind of cool, um, loving image, but very God wants this to happen. He's creating this garden and, and places this man in it to work work until it. Uh, Jesus in John 20, so to link this right to Christ immediately here, is said, to have, is said, as I kind of mentioned before, he dies in a garden, but in John 20 it says there that he was buried in a garden tomb. And then kind of the strange little interaction he has with Mary uh, after he's raised, Mary goes to the tomb and doesn't see, doesn't see Jesus' body, but he, she, she does see Jesus and doesn't recognize him and thinks he's the gardener, you know? It's like, oh, you must be the gardener. What happened to Jesus, you know? So, uh, but again, undergirding this idea that they are, in fact, in, in a garden. We can say there, I've got kind of two options interpretationally. We can say, well, unimportant detail that he was in a garden. Unimportant, insignificant. Or we can say extremely significant because Genesis and Jesus are always linked. He had to die in a garden. He had to be buried in a garden. He had to be confused as a gardener, because he's a new Adam, because God's remaking the world. He's starting over. So after he's confused then, uh, as this new, well, we would say, he's this new Adam walking around a garden, the beginning of the new world, uh, he starts to speak, he starts to work again. And, but his, his gardening is, we see right away, the type of gardening he's doing is different. So Adam, we don't see this right in Genesis 2, but Adam uh, presumably was actually working with his hands and, and tilling and, and creating order from, you know, whatever non-order I guess there was there and, and gardening and caring and trimming and whatever. I guess there's no pruning chairs probably then, but whatever he's doing. He's, he's working the garden. Jesus, though, is not doing that as far as we know. Um, I think he was a horticulturist. He was a carpenter. Uh, he, he doesn't start planting crops, but he does start planting the gospel in people's hearts immediately. He, some of the first things he does is he breathes on people. We talked about that. He wishes peace upon troubled souls. He encourages his disciples to feed his sheep with the word of God. And he sends people. And many other things as well. He encourages the, the disciples to fish for uh, fish, and they can't, find, they can't fish for any on one side of the boat. He says, I'll try the other side of the boat. You know, it's like okay, Jesus, you know, I know what we're doing here kind of thing. It's just an interesting little exchange, and then they do that, and they can't even pull it in barely. It's, there's so many fish, and um, we're actually going to look at that passage on Easter if you're around for that, but um, it's very fascinating. So um, he, he does stuff like that. He, he's gardening, the new Adam here, gardening looks like gospel ministry, growing and propagating the fruit of the tree of life, which is God's grace all around the world, casting seeds, growing crops, bearing fruit spiritually, 
uh, spiritually speaking. It's why you see so much agrarian metaphor used in the New Testament to talk about ministry. So much agrarian metaphor. And one example is in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 to 9, where Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and they're full of arrogance. They're factioned out. They, you know, some are saying, I follow Apollos. Oh, I follow Paul. He's better. He can, he can write better. Oh, but Apollos can speak better. Others are saying, I follow Christ, which you kind of think, what are the first two guys doing, you know? First two groups doing, but others say, we, we just follow Christ directly. A lot of factions. And he speaks into this saying, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to teach. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God. We are nothing who plants and waters, but only God is something who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. We're unified, though. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. And so what you, what you see here in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 3 is church planting, discipleship, uh, teaching ministries of various kinds, mentoring, uh, reading the Bible with people, prayer, all likened to planting crops, planting seeds and watering them. And, and God makes it grow, but, this is, but we have responsibility, like Adam did in the beginning, to, uh, to work, work that garden. And so in, in summary here then, three things, um, and I'll just, I'll just summarize this quick. Uh, one, uh, from this passage, uh, know who you are, know yourself. You are dust, and I am dust. We're also spirit. Both of those in their own way should point us to the need for an ongoing redeemer. We are nothing but loved. So again, this is not, oh, we're, you know, woe is me, kind of, we're terrible, and God, you know, just hates us, can't stand us or something. It's actually, we are nothing, but balance that with your loved. That, that's, that's the healthy, proper Christian thought is we're nothing, we're dust, but we are loved and we have life because God intended it. In the beginning and again in the end when Christ comes to do it again spiritually. Second, uh, eat from the tree of life. Uh, that is a command here. In Genesis 2 it says, eat from all the trees, which included the tree of life, but not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's for later, we'll talk about that. But part of the command is eat from the tree of life in the beginning. If you want to apply that, it's not outside your window. Uh, Christ is everywhere. He, he's here in this room. He's in your heart. Uh, he's, his, his words are written in this book, in the Bible. Feast on it. If you want to apply something, eat from the tree of life. Well, you got the question, what's the tree of life now? It's the cross. It's the blood of the Savior dripping down, washing uh, those who are filthy and dust-like and making life uh, from beauty from the ashes. So eat the fruit of the fact that God has saved you from your sins through his son's substitutionary sacrifice. We're already back in the garden if we believe. And so we can enter his presence and eat freely again. And um, so do that. I, and a lot of you guys I know already have. Um, don't leave here, though, without doing that in your heart right now as I speak. If you have never, I, I especially implore you, implore you to do that. He loves you. Uh, he, if, if you're dust and sinful, good. Uh, he has something to work with then. Um, but don't leave here without crying out for a redeemer and eating from the tree of life and saying, from the leaves of the tree of the cross, you could say, are the healing of the nations. And, and again, what's so beautiful about that is that God brings that right into the world. He doesn't say, go find it. He says, here it is. It's at your front door. It's, a, it's in front of your face. I want you to see me. I, I want you to come back to me. I am able and willing to save you. 
And then three and final here is, like I was talking about a second ago, work the garden. <clears throat> you, and I'll speak to Christians here for a second, so if you're not a Christian, you can just check out for a second here. Uh, for Christians, you as a Christian are not just created in God's image physically, but Jesus' image spiritually. So what I mean by that is you have been given charge over the garden of God. And this is true, if you're, if you're a leader type in the room, it's especially true for you, but it's true for all of you. So leader types and non-leader types garden with the gospel. This is not optional. This is the new creation mandate, you could say, but just revisited spiritually. This is, what, this is why Jesus immediately walking around the garden, dying in a garden, buried in a garden, being raised in a garden, be confused for a gardener, this new Eden that constitutes the new earth, and you could say himself, and maybe particularly the, the church, if the church is the special place of God's blessing in the world, uh, needs to be tended. It needs to be, we need to plant in it, like Paul and Apollos were doing. We need to water it, and we need to beg God to make it grow, because you don't make it grow. Uh, if, if some of you this summer can figure out how to, you know, cause a, a corn seed to become a corn plant, you know, let's, let's talk about that. But it's never happened. You, can, you can't make it grow. The only thing we can do to seeds physically, right, is plant them and water them. No one can cause the growth. That, that's a miracle. It's a miracle every time something grows. How much more is it a miracle every time someone's saved? It, it only happens because God intends it, because he's able and willing. He wants to save you, and he wants to keep saving you. Uh, picture him, picture him that way. But again, care for the earth this way, not just, you know, not just recycle or grow, or grow local organic foods. That's great, but it's not what's being talked about here. It, it's, it's to plant the grace of God in the church and in your heart and in the world. It's to cultivate the hardened soil of our neighborhood and our city by prayer, Christian hospitality, love, and ultimately preaching the good news. Let me pray. God, thank you much, uh, so much for your grace today and the gospel. Thank you for dying for our sins. Thank you for um, not just stopping with the one tree of life and, and guarding the way back to it, saying you can't come back after we sin, but instead making a new garden, a new tree of life, a new kind of river, a new kind of headwaters, a new kind of source of life, a new kind of uh, gold and delium and onyx-laced uh, city, garden city, that we uh, wait for and yet we kind of already have in you at the same time. Thank you, the Bible is clear. The other religions say this is about a pilgrimage, it's about a journey, it's about climbing a mountain, it's about going to see a guru who's meditating in a temple. But Jesus brings all of that completely to us. Christianity and the gospel say God journeys to us, God pilgrimages to us, God finds us when we're not looking for him. God chooses, he's able and he's willing to breathe on us. God, so I pray that uh, for your help today, uh, forgive us our sin and our, and our, our unrighteousness. Forgive us the, the untilled, hardened, clay-like soil of our hearts that don't appreciate you. We hear the gospel, and we just don't care. Uh, we hear about how amazing you are, but we don't feel it. Uh, we hear about um, how much you do for us, but we still think there's more to, for us to do for you. Forgive us that hardened, clay-like, sinful heart. Soften it by help, ha having us really understand the story. This is about you making the garden. It's about you making us. It's about you working from dust. It's about you breathing life into the nostrils of Adam. It's about you later in the story sending your son. It's about you later in the story creating rivers in our hearts. It's always been about you. 
And finally and ultimately, it's about the tree of life. It's about you setting that tree up yourself and dying on that tree and saying, here I am, and stretching your arms out wide and saying, I love you. God, help us to receive that gospel as ruined sinners, uh, saved, dust-like sinners, saved by a God uh, who just, for some weird reason, loves us and wanted to become like us in order to die for us. Praise be to God, this is all true, regardless of our feelings about it today. It's a fact, it's truth, it's reality. Help us to feel that more now as we respond. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let's stand as we respond together.